Before you listen to this episode, this is just a trigger warning. We're talking about issues of consent in this episode and we'll be discussing issues on rape, sexual assault, sexual violence and homophobia. If any of these issues are um, something that would trigger you, please um, choose another episode. There are plenty to choose from. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Northeast Law Review podcast. Today we are speaking to Andrew Beecham. Hello. Hi Andrew. <laughs> Hello. How are you today? Um, I'm very well, thank you. I'm just sitting at home uh, in front of the screen chatting to you too. Very much looking forward to it. Oh good. Um, did you want to introduce yourself a little bit first? Oh yes, absolutely. So my name is Andrew Beecham. I'm a PhD candidate uh, here at the law school. Um, and have been um, since 2015. So I'm a, a part-time uh, PhD candidate. Um, I've had my viva uh, and I'm just currently working on uh, the revisions to my thesis. Excellent. Um, How's that been going? Oh. Um, the revisions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's... It's more interesting um, working on the revisions than it is the actual thesis, strangely, because you've got more of a guide as to what the examiners want and you kind of know what you have to uh, to do to pass uh, rather than um, thinking what you, what you have to pass, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, and my sort of teaching in the law school has always been uh, involved around uh, the criminal law module. What's um so what's your PhD on and um I guess why did you choose to do PhD as well? Well, um firstly what my PhD is on, it's on the rather um argumentative or some would say controversial topic of uh, the decriminalization of incest between consenting adults. Now um the way I uh, got into this particular area uh, was that I had previously done uh, a research degree here at uh, Newcastle um, when I graduated in 2007 on that. Um, I was looking around for a subject uh, or a topic um, or an issue for a PhD for quite some time. Um, and then in March 2015, I came across uh, an article which I, I'm sure both of you are quite familiar with, um, having it raised in uh, criminal law seminars, uh, was a, an article by Bauscher uh, from March 2015 um, entitled, Should Incest Between Consenting Adults Be a Crime? And that kind of tweaked my interest in this particular area. Um, and it, it just went from there. I mean, I think it's such an interesting topic. I know that we discussed it in our seminars um, this year for criminal, um, but we just also wanted to talk a little bit more today about um, consent and kind of the law around that. Cause obviously I know that that's quite relevant to kind of your studies in general. And we kind of got into it in a, again, a seminar and I did think it was really interesting. Um, so do you want to kind of go through the law on consent a little bit first and then we can kind of discuss a bit more? 
Well, that's, that's a rather open-ended question, isn't it? Of course, the law on consent, which I, I'm sure uh, we went through in, in terms of, of the seminar, that it, it's, it's a rather open-ended um, issue. Um, consent's a rather difficult um, subject to obviously discuss because there is uh, issues about what a person can consent to and the particular um, I don't want to say area of the law when we are talking about this. For example, um, can we consent comes up in terms of contract law, in terms of offences against the person. It also plays a vital role um, in, in certain sexual offences. Um, so the law itself, it, it really is dependent upon in what context we are talking. Now, obviously, both of you uh, were, were students of mine for criminal law, so we'll, we'll focus this on a, on, a, on a criminal law context. Um, but generally, um, the, the, the criminal law uh, relies upon consent in a number of ways in that um, it is either uh, an element of the offence, or it is uh, a defence to the offence. Um, for example, in terms of a, a sexual offence, uh, sexual offences, and for example, specifically rape, uh, the absence of consent is an element of the actus reus for the offence. Whereas, in respect of uh, some offences against the person. Um, to say that um, someone has consented is to defend the actions uh, upon uh, the uh, assault or battery or whatever particular offence we are talking about. Um, however, of course, there are uh, a number of exceptions to that, which, um, which I'm sure we shall come on to shortly. So... Andrew, what are the kind of policy concerns when kind of when the courts and when Parliament are constructing um, how they think consent should work? What kind of things are they having to balance? Um, yes, that's that's also a very difficult question because Parliament cannot think of everything. And Parliament, I, I think, to an extent, uh, would rather not think of everything because... Uh, they are themselves binding themselves to, to particular social issues. And if we think about things on a practical sense, um, these are MPs who are also thinking about their particular seats and don't want to be bound by to particular social policies to their electorate, which they may not agree with. That's just a general um, view which could affect all MPs on all issues, uh, depending upon sort of the local circumstances. Um, in terms of policy, though, I, I think although the courts do frequently mention that it is for Parliament to decide, um, Parliament is always very slow um, to get itself embroiled if embroiled is the right word, involved in um, 
lawmaking policy of this kind. Um, it's not something which uh, is, is top of the list. And, and I think it's been said many times is there are no votes in law reform. Um, it's that the policies that kind of come into to play, of course, are it's the, the rights of the individual against the rights of the state uh, to interfere. And I think that to some extent, parliamentarians do not fully grasp uh, the issue in which they are or may well be considering in terms of uh, elements of consent. If we are looking at it in a black and white kind of way about should a person consent to a particular action, then yes, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's something which can be easily grasped. However, if we are thinking about things whereby we are looking at the individual person and the elements that go behind the, the, the choice to consent, that's something which is a lot more gray and is difficult not only for uh, MPs when they are considering these issues, but also for judges and legal academics, as well as it is for, for, for criminal law students or any students when thinking about these issues. And it all does boil down to personal preference and choice, I would say, which really is a, is a kind of circular way to say that really consent is an issue that boils down to consent and personal choice. Um, really is, I think, it, it, in a circular way, but we, we've kind of got to look at it in, a, in an abstract way. Um, before looking into it in a in a more detailed, specific kind of way, I hope that kind of makes sense, and I I haven't confused anybody by uh, by describing it like that. No, I I think that makes complete sense because, as you say, it is um, such a kind of subjective issue to obviously lots of different people. We do know that it um, has been developed through the case law um, massively looking specifically at the case of R against BM, the body modification case. Um, it's too broad just to say, what do you think about that? But obviously, in terms of kind of autonomy versus the criminal kind of law intervention, what, what's your opinions on that? Okay, yeah, so um, BM, I think we can now call him Brendan McCarthy. Um he has subsequently stood trial and did subsequently receive um, a four-year sentence. Obviously, the, the acronym was to prevent uh, any future issue with trial and uh, being uh, disclosed. Um, yeah, um, if, I, if I talk about the case generally first and, and then my kind of view on it, so... Uh, for those listeners who, who don't know and have never come across the case before, uh, Mr. McCarthy was a, a tattooist in, uh, I think it was specifically Wolverhampton, um, who 
was a licensed tattooist uh, and was uh, apart from uh, tattooing people engaged in a in a service of providing to some extent uh, some body modifications now the the amount of body modifications that he did perform uh, is unknown it's not disclosed in uh, the court of appeal judgment but three particular um body modifications that he did were the, the forking of a tongue uh, the removal or reshaping of an ear and the removal of a nipple. Now, in those particular cases, um, how they came to light of, of the authorities is not specifically uh, stated, but one can imagine that it, it was unlikely to be the people that um, uh, consented to it. Um, unless, of course, further down the line, they'd had a, a change, of, change of heart. Now, in each of these uh, three instances, um, or other instances, Mr. McCarthy was not out there touting for work. He wasn't stood on the street saying, come in and I will remove your nipple, come in and I will reshape your ear. Um, the I don't want to call them victims uh, for reasons which I will come on to shortly, um, but the, the customers consented freely to this particular action. Um, Mr. McCarthy gave them a, a consent form, the validity of which obviously is entirely dependent upon uh, future action, um, which they understood and signed. They, they agreed to the actions um, which they themselves wanted. So in uh, these particular instances, uh, they, Mr. McCarthy was, was charged with three counts of Section 18 of the Offences Against the Person Act, which, uh, as every law student will, will, will know, and it just rolls off the tongue, it is grievous bodily harm uh, with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. Um, the issue um, in the case was whether or not the customer's uh, consent to the actions would render the prosecution null and void uh, on the basis of consent. Effectively, do, did Mr. McCarthy have the defense of consent? Um, at trial, um, or pre-trial, I should say, uh, the judge ruled no. Uh, and that was the um, matter which went to uh, the Court of Appeal. Now, you've mentioned my uh, case comment upon it. Um, I think the first point from the case, which we, we, we can kind of say, is that um, I think the Court of Appeal, and particularly Lord Burnett, who gave the judgment, was seemed quite upset that the case had actually got that far. Um, I think upset's a strong word. What was confused, perhaps, as to how... Um, this particular issue had got that far and the the untidy way um, it had uh, reached the Court of Appeal. For example, this particular case was not any, uh, a case whereby um, a full trial had been run, all the evidence had been tested, um, the defence of consent had been uh, refused by a jury um, and 
he had sought to appeal. Um, the case involved uh, the appeal against the ruling of the judge that uh, consent would not be a defence. So it was a, 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 an interlocutory appeal on that ruling. Um, so I think the, the, the Lord Chief Justice was a bit surprised um, that firstly the ruling hadn't uh, prompted a guilty plea from Mr McCarthy, so as to, to rule out any necessity for it to get to the Court of Appeal, but also the fact that they were effectively deciding the case before the case had been decided. Um, you can understand that, and I think the point I make in my case comment was that um, had the case gone through the, the normal trial sentence process and had then gone on to, to appeal, that uh, permission to appeal would never have been granted by the single judge because they would have taken the view following Aaron Brown um, and other similar cases that the, the point was well decided and there was no issue here. The fact that it was a, 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 an appeal against a ruling meant that um, the Court of Appeal had to decide it. Um, and I think it's one of those cases where I, I, I personally think that uh, Lord Burnett and the Court of Appeal would would have preferred not to uh, have decided it at all um, rather than um, have done. It, I think this particular issue is one of these cases whereby uh, the Court of Appeal is effectively the middleman um, or middle person um, between the, the Crown Court and the Supreme Court and then ultimately for, for Parliament. And that the Court of Appeal really, they, they are bound by the judgment in Brown, albeit Brown didn't really concern the issue of body modification. It was a new point. So they would not directly have been bound by the judgment in Brown. Um, but they were free to make their own decision. But as I said, the, the Court of Appeal views itself perhaps as, as more of the middleman in this um, to make a decision, hoping it then goes on to the Supreme Court to make a decision. Um, but in this particular instance, it, it didn't. Um, yeah. Brown itself is, is nearly 30 years old now and is, of course... Um, a case which every every law student knows whether they, they know it as, as Brown, the, the sadomasochistic case, which has been described to me, um, but it's one which is very well known. Um, Brown for me was the first, um, I guess my first proper insight into criminal law. I read a book just before I came, when I was deciding to study law at university called um, What About Law? And they take each section, like they take each module, um, each compulsory module and they take one case um, and they talk through the case and the issues. And Brown was the one in the criminal chapter. And it really, it really made me think in a way that, 
I hadn't before and I felt and now I that's what I'm doing almost every day now I do a law degree but at the time it really blew my mind because you know I think sometimes you read on perhaps first instance you might read brown and go well of course you wouldn't let that happen like why would you let people do that to themselves but as you start digging into it more and thinking more about people's per like um individuals autonomy it becomes a lot more complex and it's not just all about the state protecting other people like protecting people from themselves and others absolutely um i think it is one of those cases which does prompt people's interests um going to one side for, for one brief moment um as i said my phd is effectively on an element of sex um and when you are doing a PhD, you are very much encouraged to discuss and, and engage with other PhD candidates um, from, from the Haas faculty. Uh, Laura is part of the uh, Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences faculty. And, and we talk about what our um, particular PhD is on. And strangely, um, it's one of those my pitch generally is one of those issues whereby everyone does have an opinion, whether they agree with it or not. Um, it's one of those interesting subjects which everyone has an opinion on. Now, Brown is also one of those particular cases because it's something which everyone has a view on, whether they agree with it or not. The important point is they have a view. It's not something, uh, an abstract area of law or some, no disrespect to colleagues in the law school here, it's not some abstract equity or contract point um, where you would think, hmm, that's interesting, I've got no view on that. Um, someone always has a view. And Brown does, even after 30 years, have that um, impact and interest. When you read, I think, BM as it, as it was titled um, in the law reports, and certainly when I read it, you can certainly see Brown in BM and to an extent, if, if you were to think about BM in terms of Brown as well, you can certainly see BM in Brown, how it would have played out and how it would have been viewed had it been considered in Brown as well. Um, my kind of concern with Brown and BM is that there is a particular focus and as you've said your first reading is oh of course why wouldn't we why, why should we let people do these particular things but then that applies to almost anything why should we let um someone tattoo themselves why should we let someone get their ears pierced why should we let someone do anything um, in those kind of uh, situations. And the focus has been 
I think primarily upon the abstract of the theoretical against the practical. Uh, and if we think about it in those kind of terms and we think about the theoretical, the theoretical has always been what about? Um, and by that, I mean, we, we think about, and this was particularly apparent in Brown um, and in BM, was we need to think about the vulnerable. Now in Brown, they were concerned with the, the corruption of young boys uh, in this kind of sexual activity with much older and more experienced men. Um, in BM, it was um, the vulnerable who may not know what they are uh, agreeing to, who may well think, Yes, this this will be good fun. Um, not realizing that it's it's a one way um, activity. So taking off one's ear is it, it can't be grown back. It can't be replaced. Um, so it's always been a case of I would say about the the practical and the, the abstract theoretical. But in terms of the practicalities of it, I think you've got to ask, who are these particularly vulnerable people? So who are, in Brown, these... Were there any young boys that were being corrupted, to use their own words, into this activity? Who are the vulnerable people that are being lured, in effect into this tattooist shop in, in Wolverhampton to have various body modifications um, performed upon them. I think that's the way we've got to view the law on autonomy and consent of let's get away from these theoretical issues about what ifs and the the who may or may not engage about the I mean the future and look at the practicalities of were there any vulnerable people involved in this body modification? If they were vulnerable, then that's that's a different question, of course. But it's I think the law and consent and autonomy does have the, the inclination to think about the what-ifs rather than the what are's. Um, were they vulnerable rather than could they be vulnerable? I think that's the, 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 the key point which we've got to get from um, cases on autonomy and consent. And it's, it's an issue that's dodged, I think. Um, no, they don't consider the specifics, um, which is particularly apparent in, in, in BM when you read the case. The, the customers, their details are not mentioned at all. What is mentioned is the, the act that was performed upon them. Now, we don't know whether or not they were men, women, age, um, any kind of personal characteristics about them. Mental health was mentioned, whether there was any issues regarding that at all. We don't know anything about them, save only that various acts have been performed upon them. So it's very difficult for us to sort of analyse the, the 
the what are's rather than the the what ifs in this particular case while we were on um the kind of idea of the vulnerable people and the what ifs i just wanted to ask about wilson and where that comes into this because obviously that was a case where arguably you could find little difference between that and brown um and arguably she ended up in hospital while no one in brown did so obviously that's kind of a factor to play into it but do you think that the whole idea of vulnerable people was why they didn't um consider wilson to be the same as brown you could look at wilson in two ways um each then looking at it again in two ways if that makes sense in that you can look at wilson as as you can look at brown in that is it a sexual case or is it a violence case and if it is a sexual case the law is very unwilling to interfere in the bedroom where it is a man and a woman. The law is more willing to interfere in the bedroom if it is two or more men, as in Brown, or two or more women, though more likely in respect of men than it is for women. And if if we are treating it as a case of violence, then, the facts again that it was a, a man and a woman who were married, they are the law is again treating it as a, an issue of um, tattooing um, from Wilson. Um, then it is to think of that, about it as a case of of a violence in in the sense that. In, when it comes to men and women in, in, in this particular kind of aspect, I think the societal roles which we are almost forced to play or we are channeled into playing um, or the law still assumes that we do play um, is, is key here. So it's... The law seems to assume or those that make the law seem to assume that any case involving uh, two men in in a particular way of life will be um, a violence case, whereas when it's man and woman, will be more likely to be a sexual case. Now, of course, leaving aside the important issue um, of male-female Uh, domestic violence which is an extremely important issue and I'm not sidestepping it or distracting away from it but what I would say is is that the which it obviously does exist um the the violence is more likely to occur um in the eyes I think of society where there is there is two men rather than a man and a woman and the law and society would rather not interfere in a male-female sexual relationship, even though there is a hint of violence, um, than if it was a, a male-male relationship. I don't know what your particular views are on, on Wilson, and uh, 
whether or not you want to discuss these further. But um, <laughs> Wilson for me has always been, um, it's the anomaly. Wilson is always considered to be the, I would say is always um, the anomaly because you, to a certain extent, uh, you could look at it as an entirely sexual issue, but then you could also look at it as an entirely violent issue. It really is the, the anomaly, but the, by the fact that it is a male-female uh, incident. Yeah, without diving too much into queer theory and like more the other judgments, I think there is like definitely an element of like underlying homophobia in the Brown case and oh, in, absolutely, and in like cases that we've seen, there's also been oh, it's gone from my brain. Um, the there was a case a sec. A, I think it was a sexual assault case uh, concerning a trans individual, um, which also we discussed, I think, in criminal law last year. Are, are you thinking of the case of McNally? I am. I am. You've reminded me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there are lots of cases in criminal law that when I've sat down and discussed it in my seminar group and with friends, we've gone, mm, that doesn't quite sit right. Um people are being treated differently, not because of this necessary, the situation they're in or the vulnerability of the individual, but because of like personal characteristics, like how they identify and um, their like sexuality. Absolutely. And if we think about Brown and McNally in reverse, um, so let's, let's assume that uh, in Brown, every person involved was a woman rather than a man. I doubt we would be talking about the case 30 years later. I doubt it would have reached the House of Lords and I doubt it would have reached trial. Um, if we think of McNally in reverse, that um, it was a, a boy who thought he was, um, who had a boyfriend, but in fact uh, had, they were uh, actually a female. I doubt it would have got that far because it would have been assumed, uh, particularly by the, the parents, that it was a, a normal thing to engage in. It's, it's, when you look at things in reverse, um, it is always interesting to find the view. I think I recall in, in some seminars, I, I've used the case of uh, uh, Roberts in uh, flight and fight cases. Um, where um, a, a lady uh, was uh, was hitchhiking with a chap and he placed his hand upon her uh, thigh um, and she jumped out of the car at 50 miles an hour. And the question I asked to students, particularly male students in the seminar, is if that had been you as the passenger, and the driver who was placing their hands upon your thighs and making sexual advances had been a woman, would you jump out of the car? The majority, uh, the overwhelming majority of, of male students who I ask it to would say no. And it's rather interesting to know that 
once when you keep the basic facts but alter this the 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 gender roles of the people involved how different people will view the particular circumstances and the facts even though you present them in an identical way exactly and i think this is why it's such a issue that's really sticks with you when you study criminal because the cases of brown wilson and obviously BM, you just you can't even make sense of them, can't really make sense of how Wilson was decided that way. And obviously Brown was decided the other. And it does kind of come down to a, a homophobic issue, I guess, in the end. Um but one thing that I did want to ask about that you wrote about in um the case comment was do you think that if an offense obviously offenses against a person include two elements, the actress various the mens rea? Do you think that there should kind of be a, an element where it it should be whether the victim has actually considered that they've been assaulted? Almost, you know, so in this case kind of wouldn't even exist because the victim doesn't consider they've been assaulted at all. Or do you think that would be kind of to open a whole other layer of issues? I think that would open up a new layer of issues. And obviously, as we discussed in in seminars and as anyone listening may well know is that in brown they set the bar at a particular level as to what someone can consent to um when it goes above that level um it effectively is out of the hands of the person that has been used in speech remarks there assaulted or is the in speech remarks the victim it is beyond their hands and it's out of their hands, regardless of what they say. Now, we can think about this in, 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 a, in again, a, th a theoretical and a practical way. Theoretically, yes, it is. You've got to think about the, the, the way in which a conviction can be obtained. Now, you, it's very difficult to obtain a conviction without the involvement of uh, those that are, are involved in it. So you've got to then look at the, the practicalities of the CPS and pursuing this kind of thing. Is there a public interest in it? I think the issue which you raise is really one which is a, is a behind the scenes kind of issue in that really it should be a matter for the CPS to decide. Now that obviously is, doesn't, and it's not unique to these kind of cases, but is, is, is similar to all of the cases. And when we think about, is it in the public interest to prosecute? And do we have these, can we meet the necessary evidential threshold for it? Um, it <sighs> if we come back to McNally for one particular point, because I think that's kind of relevant here, is, did the, the girl in McNally consider to herself to have been, shall we say, assaulted? Um, it's difficult to know, but what is clear from the case and what is clear from reading the case is that there was a certain amount of parental pressure um, involved in this behind a statement being made. Now... If we look at it that way, is did the victim, again, 
speech marks um, in McNally view herself as being assaulted? Maybe, maybe not. Did the parents of the victim um, in McNally view her child as being assaulted? Absolutely. It really is um, a difficult issue to, to grapple with when we are thinking about um, consent and the views of the victim. For example, when we are, when we are again thinking about consent is we've got to think about it as consent. Do we think about it as consent at the time or when looking back at it and thinking about would this, would I have agreed to this? Now, I think the, the easier and the, the, the better way to, to discuss these things is at the time. Um, what was consent at the time? Um, would they view themselves as being assaulted at the time? Maybe not. But then if we think about um, bringing in the element of autonomy again, uh, or describing it as autonomy, as a person is entirely free to change their mind. Now, I've agreed to do this podcast. Uh, I've agreed to do it with you when I started the podcast, but of course I, I could leave it at any time. I could suddenly stop the recording, stop the, uh, or leave the room, um, as is my right and freedom of choice. Um, because the, um, I haven't chose to do that. You can imply from that that I am still fully consenting and agreeing to, to engage in this discussion with you. Um, the same is true for other kind of elements um, and uh, uh, specifically offences where we think, what is it that is important at the time? And the element of consent is what is important. Um, we need to sort of think about Yes, someone is free to change the mind, but there's got to be a point where that is, in reality, it's too late. Um, so, again, coming back to McNally and your particular question of should we have a, a, an element um, in the offence whereby they consider themselves to be uh, the victim or to have been assaulted, I don't think so. Um, I think it would make it an unnecessary um, element to an offence, which you would then have to... Um, I think the practical difficulty is we would then take autonomy into the courtroom more than it needs to be. Um, because if you were to sort of view... Is someone... Was someone assaulted? Did they consider themselves to be assaulted? It would then go into their own, the victim's frame of mind. And I don't think we'll, on a victim impact groups or victims uh, groups would want to go into that particular aspect because it would then be turning the trial onto the victim rather than away from the defendant. And I think that's not an avenue which we should really go down explored a little bit in um in law and gender in semester one of this year um we did um 
RNA number two and um, the disclosure of sexual history evidence in rape trials and the extent to which the disclosure of that kind of evidence puts the, the victim, puts the complainant on trial. Um, and so I think I think consent, it's it's so broad and it's so specific on individuals unlike the scenario as you're saying it's about the what actually happened and not just the making a more broad principle um that seeks to protect vulnerable people if the people in the case concerned what like may not have fallen into that vulnerable person category um been really interesting to talk to you andrew has some like really interesting discussions yes definitely thank you so much for speaking to us I think it's been very informative and again really interesting thank you very much